If you will, remain standing and uh, join with me. We'll be reading from Exodus 16, 1 through 18. I'll be reading the ESV version, so please read along with me. Exodus 16, 1 through 18. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sinai which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepared what they brought in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumbled against us. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came upon and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you, given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you have in this tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with the nomer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. May God be blessed by the reading of his word and God's people as well. Thank you. Please be seated. Father God, we just pray 
that at this moment you open up our hearts and our minds to read your word and to apply it and to please you with our lives. God, show us Christ in Exodus, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Just as a little uh, pastoral disclaimer, um, I am the worst person to be preaching this sermon uh, today. Um, if you are new here and you are visiting here, um, don't let my uh, gifted sermon writing or sermon speaking fool you into believing that I have by any means attained um, some of the things I am recommending today. We are talking about complaining. No one likes complainers, right? Even complainers don't like complainers. No one likes complaining. Most people would agree that there is something inherently unpleasant about complaining. And certainly no one would list complaining as a virtue. Oh yeah, he's hardworking and what a grumbler, right? <laughs> really love how he, uh, you know, really is honest about all of his complaints. Nobody listed as a virtue. Even more, Scripture shares our distaste about grumbling and even goes so far to call it wicked. Have you ever thought of complaining as being a sin, not just a not just a defect in our character, but actually wickedness against God. In his reflections about hum, uh, rebellious humanity, Jude speaks of the forthcoming judgment that is coming on the ungodly. This is interesting. You might want to turn there. Jude, verse 16. I think there's only one chapter in Jude, so there you go. You can't get lost. Jude, verse 16. He breaks into this devastating description of the ungodly people and talking about people that he is going to bring judgment upon, here's what he says. These are grumblers. In Greek, literally, these are complainers. Malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, for those of us that like to put everybody else's sins above ours, notice what heads the list. These are grumblers complaining heads the list in this list and in this description of the ungodly and of those who are going to receive judgment. First and foremost are those who complain. Grumble. Paul even goes so far to say that it was because of grumbling that the Israelites were destroyed in Corinthians, first Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. Why did the Israelites die in the wilderness? Why did God bring his judgment on them? Because of their grumbling. It's worth asking then, what is it about grumbling that makes it so bad that it heads the list of ungodliness and that it warrants destruction from God? What makes complaining, murmuring, grumbling so bad that God is so irritated by it, He must bring destruction upon it. As we will see in Exodus chapter 16 today, Israel's grumbling, and I think we'll find our grumbling, is so repugnant because it revealed their inwardly wicked, dissatisfied hearts. Put another way, their outward grumbling was merely the tip of the iceberg of their internal rebellion against God. Grumbling's not an end of itself. It comes from somewhere. 
It indicates something. As Jeremiah Burroughs puts it in the rare jewel of Christian contentment, murmuring is but as the smoke of the fire. There is a fire and smoke, there's a smoke and smoldering before the flame breaks forth. And so before open rebellion in the kingdom, there's first a smoke of murmuring and then it breaks forth into open rebellion. Using this logic, Israel's and our grumbling, as, as we will see described in Exodus 15 through 17, is nothing less than verbal insurrection against our sovereign God. Verbal insurrection. Have you ever thought about complaining that way? Verbal insurrection against a sovereign God. Knowing that this is crucial for our own walk with the Lord, knowing that you have a pastor who is a grumbler right alongside with you, I think it's good for us together, humbly walking together as Christians, like sojourners, just like Israel in the wilderness, that we learn what the truth is about our grumbling, what the truth is about our complaining, and what we are actually doing when we complain, and what is happening when we complain. I think it's worth considering those questions. Because we do it so much, don't we? We do it so much. If if you want to know, um, I grumbled about Wingstop last night. I know. Red Oak, Wingstop, messed up my order. I grumbled about it. I grumbled on the way here because I had all these fuzzballs on my coat. We grumble, we complain all the time, and we don't need much of a reason to. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons why we grumble all the time is we place it as a lower sin. I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not stealing anything. I'm not robbing anyone. I'm not embezzling money from my company. But as we will see, grumbling is actually a big indicator of a, of a heart gone terribly wrong. It is way worse than we give it credit. It is way worse, way more wicked than we tend to think. Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 3 begin this way. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, or Shin, or Sin, or Sin, or however you want to say it, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That setting is very similar to Exodus 15, isn't it? Once again, we find Israel in the wilderness. Once again, they're faced with a problem, a shortage, a lack of something. Whereas in Exodus 15, they lacked water. Here, they lacked bread and meat. Here again, we find, them not, we find them not learning from their lesson in Exodus 15 and calling out to God who can and would and wants to give them what they call out to Him for. But instead, they grumble against God's servants once again. Now, with all the similarities that we find between Exodus 15 and Exodus 16, our lesson actually comes about grumbling as we compare the differences between these two accounts in Exodus 15 Exodus 16. They've grumbled before, but their grumbling now in Exodus 16 reveals something more, something progressive that is happening. I think as we look at the differences between what's happening here in Exodus 16 and what happened in Exodus 15, we actually walk away with three big important truths about complaining that we should all know. 
First, grumbling spreads like a disease. I originally put on there like a foot fungus. And then I marked it out because I thought that's kind of gross, probably a little too personal for people. And then I decided to go ahead and do it anyway. So (laughs) grumbling spreads like a foot fungus, right? Just a little bit and it spreads, right? You give it attention, you scratch it and it spreads more. You scratch the foot fungus and then you scratch other parts of your body and you're going to have a fungus there too. It's just, it's a fungus that spreads. Guys, I'm going on vacation this week, so this is going to be me in rare form today, okay? <laughs> it's, it's a fungus that spreads. Here's how we see this in Exodus 15 and 16. In Exodus 15, 24, it says the people, very ambiguous, the people grumbled. Ambiguous. It doesn't talk about how many people or who it was or whatever. It just says the people grumbled. But look in Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. It's a subtle distinction, but Moses is a smart dude. In Exodus 15, when he talks about the people grumbling, and in Exodus 16, he says the whole congregation grumbled. What he's showing there is that their grumbling has spread. The number of grumblers has gone to be the entire congregation, the entire assembly of Israel. It has been said that misery loves company. It can also be said that complainers love complainers or that complainers multiply complainers. Grumbling doesn't remain isolated in any congregation. Complaining doesn't remain isolated in any family, any unit. If one person begins to complain, pretty soon you begin seeing other people complaining and Other people not thanking God for what they have and other people neglecting to remember God's grace. It's the way it happens. It's the way it happens. Takes one person to cause some kind of discontentment. And then before you know it, we're all thinking about how we're discontent. But not only did the number of Israel, of Israelite grumblers grow, they also grew in what they grumbled against. Referring back again to Exodus 15.24, Israel grumbled against Moses, the one man, Moses. They grumbled against him. But now in Exodus 16.2, they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. They go from hating the lead pastor to now hating the lead pastor, the discipleship pastor, and the worship pastor. They get It gets worse. It's not just that the number of complainers are growing. It's that what they're complaining about, who they're complaining against, is growing worse. Now, I think recognizing this helps us to see the seriousness of our own grumbling. Our grumbling will, without fail, result in the creation of more grumblers. And still more, our grumbling will become more severe. If you ever think, you know, I've kind of really reached my cap of grumbling, I'll never complain more than I am now. That's a foolish thing to think. Scripture doesn't show that at all. Scripture doesn't say that at all. You've never reached a cap at complaining. You have to kill it out at its root. You have to get rid of it completely. Just like a person with a foot fungus has to get rid of the foot fungus to not have to deal with foot fungus anymore. You can't just say, well, now it's just a little bit of foot fungus. Well, it's going to grow again. It's the truth about our complaining. Our little points of discontentment, if left to fester, will lead to greater points of discontentment. Our grumbling spreads worse. And so I don't want to overdo that point. Um, but 
just know that your grumbling grows. Second, grumbling deceives us into denying God's past grace. As Israel grumbled, they said, just listen to the poor woe is me here. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. This is the moment where I as a pastor want to go, you were in slavery. Do you not realize it wasn't this happy memory that you re- that you're recalling right now? You weren't sitting by meat pots. You weren't eating eating bread to the full. You were having to carry bricks on your back. The Egyptians were taking away your children and throwing them into the river. They took away straw so that now you had to make bricks without straw. What do you mean that you miss Egypt? Not only had they forgotten how bitter their slavery was, they actually went so far as to wishing they had a different relationship with God. Listen to what they say. They actually wish that they had died under the hand of God in Egypt. You know what they're saying there? We wish we would have been judged with the rest of them. We wish the the the, the tenth plague would have killed us all. That the death angel would have just wiped us all out. And we see the same response later with Jonah. Jonah runs from the Lord, disobeys God because of his own sinful actions, gets swallowed by a well, should die, should be digested, gets delivered by God, ends up fulfilling what God wants him to do, goes, stands on the cliff, gets discontent with God, and then ends up still smelling like a well, saying, it is better for me to die than to live. This is a tendency for us as God's people. That in our moments of discontentment and complaining, we start thinking, life was better before Jesus. Or life was better when, when I didn't have all these, these, these points of holiness I had to follow. You know, I've actually had people tell me it feels harder now that they're a Christian. It was easier back then. It was better back then. They could have what they wanted, not feel guilty about it. And here's my answer to that. It might have been easier. But it wasn't better. It might have been easier, but it wasn't better. Israel might have had some steady meals throughout the day. But they were a dead and dying people. My friends, ingratitude makes us take this sweet, sweet, amazing grace of God and completely deny it. There's lots of people who, after they put their faith in the Lord, feel the Lord's call. I think of people like Jim Elliott, Amy Carmichael, William Carey, Hudson Taylor, that the, the, the faith that they put in Jesus meant that they were heading to their own discomforts, their own deaths at some point. Jim Elliott being speared on the beach of an Indian tribe. And nobody would look at that and say, man, that's easier. But isn't that better than Jim Elliot following some of the footsteps of his family and being an alcoholic in a bar somewhere? Isn't it better for that in, in, in the sense that he's he's now got a life now that has purpose and, and God has saved him out of his sin and not only does he get heaven, but now Christians look back at him and are inspired and maybe I should do something? Remember, when we get discontent, we tend to completely write off God's excellency. 
We completely ignore the fact that He's brought us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Not to miserable light. Marvelous light. It is amazing grace for a reason. Third, grumbling causes us to be suspicious about God's intentions toward us. Notice how the Israelites did this. After telling Moses and Aaron that they wished they had died in Egypt under God's hand, they launched into an accusation for you have brought us here out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. You hear the slight accusation there? They weren't delivered so that they could be saved and so that they could have their own land and and the blessing of God's presence. They had been delivered so they could starve to death in the wilderness. God's good intentions were not so good, were they? God really had bad, evil things planned for them. And He sent Moses to be the death bringer for them. Sometimes grumbling brings us to this point where we reject the notion that God has and is actually working for our good. And we fail to realize that it's that same notion that led Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. God had somehow, instead of being a good God that was wanting to live and dwell with His people, now became a God who was withholding some kind of perceived good. He just wants to keep Godhood and independence from me. He knows that I could become like Him if I ate the fruit. And so sensing that God had some kind of bad motive, bad intention, she becomes discontent with her life in Eden and this perfection that she has. And she plucks the fruit and she eats from it. It's the very same thing that we see here in Israel. And so we see that Israel's grumbling is completely wicked, right? I hope none of us would look at this and say, ah, you gotta cut them some slack, man. They were in the wilderness. They were sweating. Well, it doesn't make it any less wicked. I mean, they, they are, these, this is a horrible thing to do. Things like denying God's grace. It was, it was an act, it was, it was growing inward insurrection against the king. It was enacted in gratitude. Spoken in gratitude, actually saying we are no longer thankful for what God did for us. It was wrongly placed suspicion on a good father. All you dads in the room know what it's like when your children act scared of you and how that can sometimes be painful. Don't they know you're a good daddy? But we do the same thing, right? This continues to be true about our grumbling today. If we examine ourselves carefully in times of complaining, we will find that we have committed the very same grumbling sin as the people in Israel. When we give ourselves up to to a grumbling spirit, we are inevitably led to suspect God's good intentions. We deny God's grace. We start asking things like, if God really loved me, then why would he let me suffer? If God really loved me, then why don't things get better for me? If God really loved me, then where's my promotion and the new car and, you know, the bigger house? And wasn't it supposed to go good for me? If God's really good, then surely all of my life should be good. And all of my life is not good, so God must not be good. And in turn, we end up having blinded hearts that fail to see God's very evident grace. Very evident grace. We just completely turn our eyes from it. And then we accuse a good and righteous God of malice. 
perfection. God is perfect. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is love and in Him is no hatred at all. And yet, we in our grumbling complain that the sovereign God has somehow now switched from light to darkness or from love to hatred and we end up accusing God of being this evil villain who has nothing in mind but are bad for us. Now God heard the Israelites grumbling. God answered Moses' dilemma before Moses even cried out to him. Moses didn't have to say a word. God, God is standing there hearing this whole conversation. He told Moses that he was going to rain down bread from heaven and that peop- the people were to go out and gather a day's portion every day. That God wanted them to do this a day's portion every day emphasizes the fact that they are to be dependent upon God. He's not going to He's not going to go Costco on them and say, hey, I'm going to send it in bulk. You're going to have to go out and you're going to have to gather it day by day, trusting that every morning when you wake up, when you wake up, that there will be bread on the ground for you. God went on to tell them that the tell Moses, at least, I don't know if he told the people or not, that the purpose of this miraculous provision was that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So here's the question. How will Israel respond when God gives them provision? We see how they respond when they don't have anything. How will they respond when they have everything? Surely, I mean, it, like like if they're like me, I, if, they, if they think like me, they say, yeah, 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 if you give us meat and bread, then you know what? We will worship you and obey you with gratitude. You give me what I want, and I promise not another grumbling word out of my mouth. Everything will be good. Church attendance will be great. I'll read my Bible. Or will the provision reveal their rebellious that they are rebellious in every state, regardless of whether they have food or no have lots of food or no food? Moses and Aaron relayed the message to the people. At evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? This is actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, I memorize, memorize it sometimes. I probably overuse it. Um, when people come to grumble against me, what am I, what am I that you grumble against me? Uh, it's great. It's a great little pocket tool. Um, yeah. Fighter verses right there. Uh, the God who heard Israel's cry in slavery. This is what Moses is saying. The God that had heard their cry in slavery was the very same God who had heard their complaints in the wilderness. My friends, think about the sobering truth. He doesn't just hear you when you pray to him. He hears your secret thoughts when you grumble against him. He's a God that hears all, right? So when we, when we complain to someone about our health, our finances, our house, our family, our boss, or whatever, he's sitting there listening the whole time. The very same God who sacrificed everything so that we could be saved and have life with him is the same God that hears us nitpick and about him. We're like teenagers, right? You save your whole life to help get their first car and then they step out and you're like, yeah, they're going to be so excited about their birthday present. They step out the front door. That's the wrong color. <laughs> you didn't get me the Corvette. 
we're exactly like that in a lot of ways, aren't we? We're exactly like that when we, when we begin to take God's good grace and we just start complaining bitterly against it. Now, Moses also shows how grumbling of any sort, no matter who it is said to be against, grumbling of any sort. We're not talking about critiquing. We're not talking about constructive criticism. We are talking about complaining. Complaining of any sort, no matter who it is against, is ultimately against God. The Israelites might have thought that they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but Moses was quick to tell them, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 8. Whoever we grumble against, we must remember that they in and of themselves are not sovereign. Let's think about it. Some of us might grumble about our boss. Oh, he doesn't pay enough. They don't pay me enough for this job. You don't realize what I have to put up with. All the nagging and the nitpicking and the long hours. They just don't pay me enough. Well, it's grumbling, right? Complaining. Now, how in the world is it against God and not against the boss who's not paying us enough? Well, who gives the finances? Who provides the money for us to buy what we need? Instead of praying to God and saying, God, I feel like I, there's some, there, I need more provision. Instead of going to Him and running like a child asking for more and thanking Him, by the way, for what we already have, we end up grumbling about our boss, but in the same time, we're overtly, subtly grumbling against the one who provides for us. What about, what about a man grumbling about his wife? You just don't realize how disrespectful she is to me. You just don't realize how many problems that she has. You just don't realize there are so many things that she needs to work on that the list would just be endless. Have we ever thought that, where does marriage come from? Doesn't Jesus say that whatever God has brought together, let no man tear asunder? What does that mean about marriage? That a man and his wife are brought together by who? By God. So when you complain about your spouse, are you not just saying to God, the woman you gave me is not what I expected. Wrong color, wrong size of pants, wrong dress size, whatever. She's not skinny enough. She's not pretty enough. She's not nice enough. She doesn't work hard enough. Are you not just complaining to the God who merged you with that woman? I'm the pot calling the kettle black. It can go on and on and on, can't it? When we complain, we complain against the one who has sovereignly orchestrated our lives. Every aspect of our lives has come through God's hands. He's the sovereign God. Right? Who you married was in his sovereign plan. The job you're working is in his sovereign plan. How much money you make, believe it or not, falls in God's sovereign plan. So whenever we complain about those seemingly irrelevant things that have nothing to do with our faith, we're actually showing our faithlessness against God who provides for us. Now, when you grumble... You will have to stand before the Lord. Just like when verse 9, when Moses calls the people up to stand before the Lord, and he repeats, for what are we? You have grumbled against God. In the same way, we have to understand that whatever complaints we have, whether it be about fellow church members, my favorite one, whether it's about your pastor, whether it's about your carpet color, whether it's about your 401k or your spouse or your children or whatever it is, Know that ultimately you have to stand before God. 
Because you have not grumbled against your children. You have grumbled against the God who gave you those children. You've ultimately not grumbled against your job. You've grumbled against the God who gave you that job. Just an important lesson I find helpful before complaining to remember that, whoa, 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 I'm not, I'm not about to chew out my wife. I'm about to really gripe out at God. I'm not about to complain about my situation or my money. I'm really about to just completely throw on the ground God's great provision for my life. We're horrible about that, aren't we? The miraculous provision of meat and bread was intended to teach Israel about the Redeemer. Through the provision, they would come to see, as verse uh, 6 says, that it was the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. They had completely discredited God when they said to Moses and Aaron, you have brought us out here to die. They didn't even say that God had brought them out. They completely discredited him. And so in verse 6, they want that this test is meant to, this man is meant to show them that it is God who brought them out into the wilderness. And then in verse 12, God says that his gift of meat and bread would be given so that you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, personal God. I am over your life. I am with you. I have promises for you. So this is given so that you will know that I am Yahweh. That's the, what all caps Lord means is Yahweh, the covenant keeping God, the promise keeping God. In other words, his provision would correct their wrong thinking about their past and their wrongful suspicions about his intentions. As through the past, the meat and manna would prove that it was God himself who brought them out of Israel, out, out of Egypt to deliver them from slavery. Furthermore, he had not led them in the wilderness to kill them, but to show himself as a good and gracious father and the God who had made promises and keeps those promises. All of their moaning and accusations in verses 1 through 3 are supposed to be silenced by the gift of bread and meat. And surely we'd think so, right? Like God's going to give them what they're grumbling about, so now their grumbling's going to cease. Verses 13 through 14 describe the fulfillment of God's promise. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as uh, frost on the ground. Now, clearly, the Israelites had never seen anything like this. They, they, they know that a Wonder Bread truck hasn't tipped over in the wilderness. This is completely bizarre. They've not seen this before. They even ask each other, what is it? And in Hebrew, what is it? Sounds like this, mana'ahu, which sounds like mana, right? Which is manna. That's eventually what they called it. They, they got so creative that they said, you know what? We don't know what to call this wonder bread. So we're just going to call it. What is it? And from that moment on, by its name, it shows God's miraculous sovereign provision. And not only was it his sovereign provision, it was personal provision. You remember back in Elam, in the, in the oasis in Elam, it was 12 springs and 70 palms for the 12 tribes of Israel and their 70 elders, right? It's personalized for Israel. It's like Israel's oasis, God's gift to them. So also with this manna, it would be God's perfect personal provision. Israel was to gather an omer for each person in the family, and it's argued how much an omer is. Um, but one thing we know is it was supposed to be enough for everyone. Verses 17 and 18 say this. They gathered some more 
some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered had much, had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no, no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. You know what that's saying? Everyone in the camp was full. Everyone had been satisfied by this bread. Nobody was going, oh, I wish I had a little bit more. I wish I had seconds. Nobody's saying, honey, we need to have another baby so that we can have more food. Everyone's saying, large family, small family, whoever, however much they've gathered, they have a huge basket full or a small little pint-sized jar full. Whatever it is was enough to fill them completely. Such is the Lord's provision. He may provide in such ways that we're left asking, what is that? And yet, if we allow it, it is his perfect personal provision for us. And it is not for us to complain, it is for us to be thankful. Sadly, God's perfect provision did not prove Israel to be thankful nor obedient. In fact, God's test exposed the sin that resided in their hearts already. They grumbled against him when they were hungry. And then they disobeyed against, they disobeyed him when they were full. There's really no situation where Israel's doing good, right? And being righteous. They're failing tests left and right. They're, they're griping when they're hungry. They're rebelling when they're full. Their grumbling about being hungry was simply the first sign of their inward rebellion. We find out that when they grumbled in those first few verses, that wasn't just because of an external problem. It was because of an internal problem. It's because of an internal problem. They failed in two ways. Their first failure was a failure to trust. A failure to trust. Moses instructed the people in verse 19. Here's what he said. Let no one leave any of it till morning. Now, we know that nobody's gathered anything that they can't eat, right? This is all meant to fill them up perfectly. We know that no one had anything left over. So this is people deliberately going hungry in the first place by pocketing some of this manna for tomorrow. Why in the world, if they didn't need to keep it over, why would they keep it over? And I think reading between the lines, here's what we see. They're afraid that it won't happen again tomorrow. Honey, the manna came in today, but we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We better tuck some of this away. We got to be that. We got to be frugal. We got to be frugal. Create the envelope system for the manna. We need a Monday ration, a Tuesday ration, a Wednesday ration. Let's get going. But what that revealed was a little bit of their doubt and their fear about would God continue to provide in the future. They were to live day by day by day. There's nothing wrong with the envelope system if you're thinking that. <laughs> but the attitude, the attitude is to be that we will live on God's day by day by day provision. And when they did not live and trust in God's day by day provision, guess what happened in the manna? It bred worms and stank. And I think it's how Moses said it. It stank. Texan, right? which I think is an apt illustration of their faith. Wormy and stinky. When we don't trust the Lord, God shows us through His provision what our faith is like. These same fears and doubts continue to plague God's people today. 
Though God has provided for us time and time again, we still fall into doubts and fears about the futures, don't we? About the future and what what will happen. We begin to fear things, right? So so a woman uh, might know that it was God who gave her her current job. It's great extra income. It provides for a little bit extra here and there. But then she starts to begin to think, yeah, God gave it to me, but it's up to me to maintain it. So I have to work and work and work and work and I have to be fearful of my boss and I have to start listening to everything they say. I have to stay over time because uh, I know that if I don't, I will lose my job. And then lo and behold, before before it's over, she begins neglecting some of the Lord's decrees for her, like like being with her family and maintaining a good devotion with the Lord. You see, all that is is manna storing. I've got to do this, this, and this, and this to make sure that I'm provided for in the future. My friends, we have a lot of workaholics in our culture. We have a lot of workaholics in this church. I am one of the workaholics in this church. And sometimes the motive behind our work alcoholism Copyright. Sometimes the motive behind our addiction to work is that we fear that if we don't, if we're not addicted to our work, then we will lose our job. (coughs) Boss won't think highly of me anymore. Boss won't, won't trust me anymore with secrets. Boss won't work, won't see that I work 65 hours instead of the normal 40. We begin to fear, don't we? My friends, all that is is us taking God's daily manna and putting it in our pockets and storing it away. And guess what ends up happening? Our faith, our families, our church life, our personal life, our energy, our rest, all becomes wormy and stinky. Or as another example, think about the man who had just recently gotten a raise. He needed more money. His wife was having some medical complications, and so he prayed, and God gave him more money to help. It was a miraculous provision. Now he's got all the insurance he could ever want. Uh, for his wife, he's got money that he, he, he can now finally, for the first time, ever save some. And so as he's going through his life, he begins to, to look at his savings account grow, and he starts to ask, well, what if this doesn't last forever? What if the economy tanks? What if I get sick? And then we've got two people in the household sick. And so he sees his friend, his, his, his brother or sister in Christ, and they, you know, it, it, maybe it's a single woman and she's, she's living on a single income with three or four boys and she's trying to provide for them and he knows that she needs help. And he knows that God has called him to be generous. And to give to needs, right? But instead he stores it away, saying, no, 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 no. I can't give because what if I lose it in the future? So I'm going to tuck it back. And the man continues on and he does exactly what James says not to do. He says, I'll pray for you. And he sends her out into the cold by herself. All that is is manna storing. If God gave the manna, do you trust him that he'll give it again? 
The second failure, and I have to wrap up pretty quickly here. The second failure was a failure to obey. It was very clear. The instructions could not have been clearer. They were to go out for six days and gather manna. On the sixth day, they would gather double, right? I'm a pretty big simpleton, and I think I can understand that. Okay, sixth day, you know, get double, okay? Because the seventh day, there's going to be no manna. And here's what Moses says. The seventh day is to be a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And we don't know much about Sabbath yet because of, we're not there in Exodus. When we get to God's Sabbath rules and regulations, we're going to find out some of the motives behind keeping the Sabbath. But it's very simple. He wants them to work all, all week long gathering the stuff and then on the seventh day to take a break. But once again, the people did not listen. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. The whole point of the Sabbath day was that they would enjoy their relationship with God. It's the day we take a break, we step back. You know, we think of Sabbath and most people automatically think, well, that's the day you go to church. It is. But it's the day that you go to church so that you can reflect upon and have a relationship with God. On the Sabbath day for the Israelites, it was a day that they wouldn't give their attention to work. Because they wanted to focus on their, their, what God had done for them and sovereign, and what He had done sovereignly for them. My friends, if you read the New, Old Testament, New Testament, the Sabbath has not gone away. In fact, in Hebrews, Hebrews says there's a Sabbath yet to come. We were made for Sabbath. We were made for a restful relationship with God. Now, how many of us work seven days a week? Because we gotta bring in that, we gotta bring home that bread, don't we? And little do we know that we're actually expressing faithlessness in the God who's given that bread in the first place. And that the best thing that you can do is to spend at least one of those days reflecting on your loving God and what He has done for you and taking five minutes out of the week, an hour, saying, God, you have provided so graciously for me, so I'm going to thank you in prayer. I'm going to sing to you. I'm going to listen to your word because you're such a great provider. I want to know how to better obey you. Your great provision stirs up love in my heart for you, and I want to be devoted to you just like you're devoted to me. All the Israelites cared about was that there was bread on the field that they could go get. But they did not care about the bread giver. At this point, I feel like we should be evaluating our own response to God's test. When we have little, when your car breaks down, you got four flat tires, when you're hungry, thirsty, tired, poor, your air conditioning goes out, your kids drive you up a wall, your husband drives you up a wall, your wife doesn't say thank you for whatever you think you've done. <laughs> this isn't about me, it's about you. <laughs> How do we respond when it comes to these things? When we have little, how do we respond? Do we respond by faithfully praying, God, I feel like I've got a lack in my life and I need you to fill that lack. Do we pray to God? Do we respond in faith? First off, 
what we think is lack is not always lack, okay? But second, if you do feel like a lack, there is a lack, what better way than to go in faith to the one who can fill the lack? Because nobody else can. But then consider how we respond when we have a lot. Do we, when we, when we have a good job, a good house, get the promotion, lots of money, and a family who cares for us, food on the table, do we respond by faithful obedience to God? When we make more money, do we give to the needs of God's people? When God gives us a family, do we do what Deuteronomy 6 says and lead out in family worship? When God has so amazingly, powerfully given us every spiritual blessing, that's Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, do we then turn that in response to, let me tell people about Jesus. My friends, I think if you are like me, I think you will find out that we are faithless when we have nothing. And we are faithless when we have everything. The problem isn't whether you have nothing. The problem, the solution isn't that you have everything. Your problem is that you need faith in God. Here's why I say that. Because grumbling does not stop when God gives us external provisions. Just in a total moment of church-wide transparency, how many of you have ever grumbled about an old past job? Okay. Now, how many of you, from your memory, know that God gave you a new job? Did you no longer grumble about that job? Or did you start grumbling about the new job? How many of you have ever been at a point where you just thought, I don't know how we're going to make it. We, if we Even if we had just $5,000 more a year, then we might be able to be a little bit more relaxed. And then God gives the $5,000 a year more. And then he says, you know what? Never mind about the $5,000. i will give you a $20,000 a year raise. And guess what? We're still complaining about our lack. Grumbling doesn't stop when God gives us our external thoughts, that we, the things that we think we need. It was eventually proven true of the Israelites. They were hungry. They had no bread. They wanted bread. God miraculously gave them manna. And then by Numbers 11, if you want to fast forward to the Pentateuch, Numbers 11, verse 5, here's what they start saying about it. God just keeps giving us this manna, this wretched food. (laughs) Grumbling is not a... It's not a physical issue. It's a heart issue. And what it takes for your grumbling to cease is not for God to give you what you are grumbling about. It's for you to allow God to work in your heart and life to get you to stop grumbling. God could give you everything you think you need right now. And I promise you, the chances are we would find new things to grumble about. The same thing needed to happen to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was once a bitter, legalistic, violent man grumbling against them Christians. And because Jesus Christ came in and did heart surgery on Paul, here's what he ends up saying. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things 
through him who strengthens me. Yes, it is not just a Super Bowl verse. The secret to contentment is learning to look to God, not to the things you think you need. Now, in the end, and I don't think we can end before we consider this, but this will be my last point. In the end, the bread from heaven that God gave here is only meant to be a placeholder. He tells them at the end of Exodus 16 that they are to take a jar, an omer of it, put it in a jar, and then we find out that jar eventually gets and in, goes into the Ark of the Covenant. And what it is is it's supposed to be kept throughout all generations so that hundreds and hundreds of years down the road, the Israelites will look back on that jar of man and remember how God provided in His faithfulness and also learn to expect God's future provision and grace. And generations later, we find Israel once again in a wilderness with no food. They had come to see this Jesus that everybody was talking about. They see him standing on a hill or on a mountain and they all come around. They want to hear his teaching. They have nothing to eat. And so Jesus, who freely claimed himself to be the I am, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, miraculously provides them food, bread in the wilderness. There's no McDonald's. There's no Panera bread. It's just bread from the sovereign hands of the creator. Everyone eats. And then very importantly, they eat until they were full. No one had any lack. If anything, they had abundance because the disciples had to go back out and gather all the remaining food. Twelve baskets full of leftovers. Well, the next day the people are like, we like that. We like that vending machine. We'll crown him. He's very portable. We can carry him around and say, Jesus, you know, mid-afternoon I could really go for a hot cross bun. So they go and they try to find him. And Jesus confronts their fickle faith. They didn't want him because they knew that he was the one who would provide every spiritual need. They wanted him because he made his, made their stomachs feel good. So he confronts them and here's what he says. When he confronts them, they, they point back, hey, don't you know that God's always given us bread in the wilderness? That we want bread from you as a, as a Messiah should be no little task. Moses has always given, Moses gave his bread in the wilderness, so therefore you've got to be expected to do the same. Here's what Jesus says, verse 35 of, uh, 32, verses 32 to 33 in John 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, not it, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they say, give us this bread. And he says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Oh my gosh, something better than manna has come. Now you think, okay, it's great humanity. We have everything that we need. <clears throat> And then in a comical, tragic sadness, here's what we read. And they grumbled against him. God has given us a true manna, the real bread from heaven. Now my question is for you, what is your response? 
For Christians, I hope you respond by remembering that the bread from heaven is truly the only one that will ever satisfy you. As Christians, we fall into thinking that we need Jesus plus all these other things for our lives to be satisfied. Jesus and everything else. And Exodus 16 would say you could have everything else and you still would not be any more faithful, any more godly, any more righteous than you already are. You need Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is the bread who fills you. And for non-Christians, for those of you that would say, I don't believe this yet. I think you could tell from your own testimony that you have dipped into many different bread pots. You've eaten meat in Egypt before. You know it's not filling. It's not even enjoyable. It doesn't satisfy you. So Exodus 16 and John 6 together would say, come and eat. Take the bread that Jesus gives. My friends, my prayer for you today is that God will bring you out of grumbling and into gratitude and gratefulness for the true bread that is from heaven. Elders, if you'll go into the back, um, take your wife with you in case we have women who need prayer as well. Um, we want to give you a chance to pray. There's some of us, including me, that constantly need prayer and need people around us to help us stop our grumbling mouths, right? I need somebody sometimes to just remind me about what all God has done and why my complaining is out of place and inconsistent with what Jesus has done for me. For some of us, we just will keep keep searching and we'll keep being hungry and keep being thirsty without ever finding any hope. And we want you to come back and find satisfaction in Jesus And so as I pray for us now, if you need prayer, I invite you to come see any of the men or women that are standing in the back um, and receive prayer from them. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a long-suffering God. We, like horrible teenagers and rebellious Israelites, Father, tend to be ungrateful. And we grumble and complain. We commit verbal insurrection against you. God, cease our grumbling and bring us grateful hearts. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.